Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Glory, America, bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means that the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last radio hour of the week, is begun. Dr. Larry Arn is our guest this week. We're talking Aristotle on friendship, and we have for two weeks. This is the second week. And last week we got up to what everyone wants to know about. Do I have the perfect friend? Am I up there in the third category of friendship? So I'm going to cut right to the chase, Dr. Arn. Would you tell us what it looks like so people can decide if they've got the best kind of friendship? Well, uh, I was saying uh, the prerequisites are important last week, and the prerequisites are the possession of all the other virtues, and they are summarized as courage. That means the right disposition toward danger. And moderation, that means the right disposition toward pleasure. And justice, which means the right distribution toward honor and distribution of goods. And then finally, practical wisdom. You have to have that. And, And that... Uh, practical wisdom is wisdom about practical things, but wisdom about practical things means knowing all the circumstances and being an excellent estimator of them, and also keeping your other eye on the ultimate things and serving them as directly and well as you can. So it's only when you get those things. And in Aristotle, it's a, it's a long road. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, by the way, because... If you understand what the requirements are of having a good character, that's a big word in Aristotle. In fact, the word ethics uh, translates well as character. Uh, It actually comes from a different Greek word that means etching or engraving. I had never thought of that until now. You're right. uh, And, you know, an ethical life. And see, all of the virtues, according to Aristotle, have to meet two criteria to be virtues at all. Uh, they, have to be, they have to stem from a stable condition of the soul, that is to say, a character. In other words, and I'll explain how you get that, and the other is they have to be done for the sake of the beautiful. So somebody who performs a valiant act on a battlefield, if they do it just to be seen, it's not courage. If they do it out of panic or confusion, it's not courage. If they do it once, half by accident, it's not courage. It has to be done for the right reason. And you can you can see what the word beauty means in this. The best translator of Aristotle, in my opinion, is Joe Sachs of St. John's College, retired now. And uh, I've been selling his books more than any other person. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he writes... We use beauty in the same way that Aristotle does when we say to somebody, that was a beautiful thing you did, right? And beauty is seen, right? You recognize it by sense perception. Uh, An example I like is physical beauty. Drive into Yosemite Valley. If If it doesn't erase all other thoughts from your mind and make you stop whatever you're doing when you see it, you have missed the beauty. To have been arrested at that opening, that has happened. By arrest, I mean pop, stop in your tracks, is not uncommon. That's I had it. that similar experience 
when I entered into uh, the David's display in Florence. It's the most beautiful human-made thing I've ever seen. And I always ask people, what's the most beautiful thing you've seen? And usually people come up with nature, and occasionally they'll come up with the David. Uh, and they're distinct kinds, right? They're one yeah. made by God well, and one made and, by man. And see, moral actions can be beautiful. Arguments can be beautiful. Often are, by the way. And, and you recognize it because they drive out everything else in your mind. And they compel you. You want them. And, and, and so, and see, just think now, once we've defined it, a life well-lived is a life devoted to that, to getting that, to the exclusion of all else. And you, you can see why uh, the highest human activity in Aristotle is contemplation. And that's, that's not thinking exactly. It's beholding. And, and it has to be beholding of some ultimate thing, ultimately the beholding of God. That's, uh, you know, there's so much in Christianity that's continuity of the, of the classics. And the word for meeting God in Christian theology is beatitude. Now, now you are an Anglican, so I don't know if they have this practice in your splinter group. But in the Catholic Church, we have the adoration of the Eucharist. Yeah. Where for 24 hours sometimes at a time, people will remain on their knees in front of the Eucharist. They are beholding the Eucharist and all that it means. That's beautiful. Yeah. And uh, in the Anglican Church, too, that is the thing honored more in the breach than the observance. <laughs> but it's still there, right? It's, it's still. There. Oh, yeah, that's, sure. It's, it's not, you know, and <laughs> the best preachers, by the way, uh, they understand that. They, they, you know, the best sermons acquaint you with a perfection. And, you know, we all want that, too. Because, remember, go back to our definition of, of good a couple of weeks ago. Uh, if you see something that's flawed, the flaw sticks out, and you think that should be fixed. And, and uh, I had Duncan Strike with his oh. daughter, a prospective student, in my office yesterday, and he's the one who designed our chapel. He's a man who makes beauty. He does, yeah, and he's just... Uh, and I, I got to explain... Uh, beauty to this young woman, you know, who she might go to the wrong college. Uh, <laughs> she and, might go uh, to uh, Thomas Aquinas, right? She might go out to California. Yeah, she might. And, uh, and if she does, God bless her. And also, she might not get into Hillsdale College. Poor <laughs> do these days. Yeah. But uh, less than that, actually. Uh, but, you know, if she wants to come, and if she's what her mother says she is, and I trust her mother then I, I, I will have some influence on whether she gets in or not. Uh, you know, if she's qualified and if she wants to. And that's just, because you and, are the and, president. And I, you know, I always make the point with prospective students. The most important thing, I mean, first of all, you, you need to be really smart. And it's not hard to tell if you are. And hard to tell if you're good at school, right? Because you get good grades and you do well on the tests and stuff. But... We don't discriminate about that very much anymore because we got so many that are like that. We try to find the ones who have the character and the desire to want to do this urgently. Do you know, I, 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 my friend Mark Guerin, who's on my list of 
of highest and best friends, uh, was president of a college for 25 years. And he said the hardest thing for Harvard is that they're overwhelmed with applicants. They can pick a cellist for the third row out of, you know, out of every they, they can go get whatever they need. It's the hardest thing in the world when you're presented with so many fine young people to pick. And I would imagine if you weren't the president, your highest and best use would be as the admissions director. Wouldn't yeah, it? well, it. Uh, so yesterday, the commandant, the immediate past commandant of the Marine Corps, the Hillsdale parent, uh, General Neller. Oh, great yes. Man, and he a teaches, friend of my friend Mel Spees, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mel Spees was here with him last term to teach, and he's here again. And uh, And we got into a talk, and he told me that a good friend had wanted his kid to come to Hillsdale College. And he'd written a letter for the person and called the admissions people and said, you know, you should really look at this kid. And the kid didn't get in. And, the, and the, the, uh, he, he's telling me this story. And the parents said, wonder why? And he called and asked the admissions office. And the answer was, well, she didn't come for an interview. Now, you see, that's yeah. want to yeah. do that, right? And we need to see that. But, you know, to a certain extent, the modern college system doesn't want people. Hillsdale's unique in that regard. Yeah, we, we interview them all, right? You and, want and them they, to come. And, and you learn so much in that. And you learn, because remember what I said before about education, it's like gardening. And the growth and motion of a, of a thing with the soul is in the thing, right? And so we need to know about them. We need to know, above all, what do they want, Right. And if they want the best things, then they're for us, we think. How, how do you pick people for the seminar on the ethics or the seminar on Churchill? Well, there's, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't know. Uh, the answer is there's more that want to do it than can do it. Of course. And so we pick uh, by three criteria, I guess. I don't actually pick except in one case. Uh, we pick seniors first. Uh, we pick uh, accomplished second, and then the third way you get in is you can just come up and make a case to me. <laughs> you must try. Your registrar crazy. I'll be right back, America. Dr. Larry Arn and I are going to come back and talk about a couple of Marines who are pretty good friends and what that tells us about friendship. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. This never goes exactly as I plan it, uh, because stuff happens in a conversation with Dr. Arn. You just mentioned former Commandant of the Marine Corps, Bob Miller, and I replied by mentioning his friend, Mel Spees. They are each other's godparents, right, to yeah. their children. They are men of war. They, wrote, they spent 30 years together in the Marine Corps. They are fast friends. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, see, that's, that's, uh, friendship is formed in war and study. Those are the best two places. And, uh, uh, the Marine Corps is a breeding ground for friendship, and a good college is a breeding ground for friendship. And, and, uh, and those two guys, see, they, they're alike in some important, their outlook on the world. They did different things in the Marine Corps. Very different things, yeah. Yeah, Mel Spies had an entire career in how to train Marines. 
Education. He's an educator. And it's rare for anybody to do that. And then, you know, uh, General Miller got to be the commandant. And uh, that was a a great move. I think Obama picked him. And that was a great thing. Uh, They must be wonderful teachers. Over somebody. And he's, uh, here's a story he told once. Uh, first of all, if you're a colonel, you want to be a general. And you almost certainly will not be. Yep. Only a few. My father-in-law was a Marine Corps colonel, and you're right. That's right. And then he says, uh, he, so when he's picking one to be a general, he has a talk with them first after, after they get it. And he says, uh, I've got one piece of advice for you. Pour your own coffee and carry your own bags. That's a great piece of advice. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Oh, my goodness. That's a great piece of advice. You know, when we talked earlier about friendships of utility, I thought of the parking attendant at my old law firm building, who I saw every day for like 25 years. And we were friendly. I haven't seen him since. I left the law firm. I retired. And that's, that's gone. But a friendship that is the real friendship doesn't disappear, even if you are separated by geography. Am I right about that? Uh, well, Aristotle addresses that extensively, and what he says is a friendship, a high kind of friendship, has to be active. You have to be with each other. But if it achieves that high state, it never fully goes away. Uh, and, you know, you, you need to uh, see, just think, uh, you know, war is an activity, and a very challenging activity. And I said before, uh, friendship of the high kind requires the possession of all the virtues, and that means Aristotle writes in, uh, there's a, uh, justice has a whole book to itself, the only moral virtue. Friendship has two books. And, and in one of them it says, if you're afraid of the flies buzzing around you, you'll never be able to contemplate the best things. Huh. You need courage, huh. right? Yes. Well, you practice courage with somebody, and that leads inevitably to conversations about why. You see, and they go, those go up to the top. They have to. And so you, you form a bond that way. And that's the same thing with uh, reading the best books. And, you know, college students are delightful in a different way than college professors are because their friendships are really great. And, and you know, at Hillstone, we aim for that, right? We don't have this atmosphere of jealousy and resentment and strife because that's incompatible you know, that's that's what dominates colleges today. Makes do you, do you try and match up in, in, in co-ed friendships in your uh, arrangement of freshman living? Uh, well, uh, in a way, yeah. We uh, First of all, it's very close here, right? And so everybody's alike in some important ways. But uh, we, we let them, we, we let them uh, indicate if they have a choice. Uh, but mostly it's just they meet the person for the first time. And, uh, and, and by the way, I think it's a wonderful system when it's random, and it will self-select to the best friendships by the end of the four years. Yeah, we don't let the football players or any sports live all together. That's interesting. We scatter them around. Uh, oh, that's students. an interesting choice. We'll come back to that. We're talking about friendship. We're beginning a long series on it. It is what defines the good life in many ways, uh, and we will be back to it right after this. Stay tuned.
Welcome back, America. Hugh Hugh at the Hillsdale Dialogue underway. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Uh, have you posted a series on, on the ethics, Dr. Arne? Have you ever taped your seminar on the ethics or on church? Yeah, we have an online course on the ethics. All right. That's, that is something I need to go watch. Uh, the first one we did with students, because people say about me that I'm, you know, I'm an aggressive Socratic teacher. And uh, that means I, you know, I abuse them and challenge them and laugh with them. It's, you know, class is a hoot. And it happens here in our big dining room in my house, which is a privilege, you know, for people because they get to go to a different place and it's pretty. Uh, and, you know, so they said, we want to do this online course and we want you to teach it and we want students that. I mean, you've got to have a bunch of cameras and, uh, and the students had to do the work, right, because they carry on a lot of the class. And it's it's a, it worked. It's good. You know, of course, it's better to participate in. Sense. When did you put that up? I have not seen that at Hillsdale.edu. How long has that been online? Maybe three years. Oh, I've got to go watch that. Uh, you know, once you're being observed, behavior changes, but then you forget you're being observed and it reverts. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, that that rule applies, by the way, when the president sits down at your table in the dining hall. It's always kind of an event. They expect it. I've been I've I've done that with you. And yeah. yes, they they know. But they soon forget, right? Then we're just talking. And then you can spring any trick on them you want to. Uh and they on me too. It's uh yeah, so it's a conversation, right? And that's, you know, the highest way to learn, too. Uh, it's the reason why online learning, which we do a mountain of and very successful. I found out the other day that our completion rates for our courses are about 35 times the average. Uh, well, now that I know about the ethics course, that is going to be... You see, the ethics is hard, uh, Larry Arn. You're not. I'm not going to obscure this for people. It's a hard book. I know it's a good book, but it's a hard book. I had Harvey Mansfield teaching me the ethics. It was hard. It it's hard. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not, you know, Aris, uh, the challenge of Aristotle uh, is different than the challenge of Plato, and they're equally challenging. Uh what Plato did, he wrote about this in the seventh letter, a biographical thing he wrote that's the most biographical thing we know about him. Uh, he said that it would be uh, very difficult to capture the conversations of Socrates, which are all, you know, he never wrote anything, right? Uh, but if it could be done, I could do it. And, and he invented the dialogue. Right, and it's just reproducing those conversations, and they're dramatic. Right, it means it means there's a, a drama going on. It means it matters who says what, and it matters what order they say it, and it matters what lay. It's very you know, and isolating exactly what Socrates thinks is not actually even the challenge. Uh, it's and it's also impossible to do. I mean, sometimes he says, but he's the wisest one, so you want to know, but in the end. The truth emerges in the discussion. In the dialectic. Yeah, the interesting thing, David Mamet, who is no mean judge of dialogue, proclaimed Patrick O'Brien's stories of Aubrey and Matron to be the best dialogue uh, written in the last many, many decades by fiction writers. Because dialogue is hard. It, yeah. it's, well, I've it, never done fiction because it's hard. And so you have to enter, you know, in, in, in reading any demanding book, and see, the books are demanding because people haven't figured it out and can only write in complicated ways, or else they're demanding because the subject is very demanding. 
And, and uh, to read such a book of that last kind, you have to enter into it, right? It's not snippets, and it's not 10 minutes here and 10 minutes there. Well, Aristotle writes the ethics. Uh, he, he wrote treatises. Uh, he wrote some dialogues, but they're lost. Uh, and the ethics is a treatise, but it is written dialectically. And to understand it, you have to understand that a lot of things change while it goes on. Uh, pleasure is a big no-no uh, in the beginning, like the nuns in the, with the rulers, right? No, no, you know, snap, snap, don't do that. Uh, but then by the end, it is the completion of the highest human activity. It's not the activity, but it's the completion of that activity, right? And so, but, but to get from A to B in that particular case, you have to have a whole lot of instruction in what it's right to take pleasure in. And that, that means he couldn't tell you all that at the beginning. And so it's a conversation with itself all the way through. And there are ten books in the ethics, and eight and nine are devoted to friendship. And then they give way in ten to the discussion of the highest human activity, which is contemplation of perfections. And, 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 and by then, and see, and, and, and in book ten, when he talks about that, he says that it is a self-sufficient activity, the most, and the only one who could help with it would be a friend. Well, let, let's go back to the friend. I got to quote to you my, my new enthusiasm for Christine Emba. She quotes the Stoic Epictetus, who wrote to his students, when you receive an invitation to pleasure, pause. We need to reclaim that, she says. And I am curious whether or not Aristotle teaches you when to pause. That's, you know, most of the book is about that, right? It's, uh, 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 he, he, he invites you, uh, it's a very beautiful book, um, and he starts out, you know, first he defines a bunch of terms. Book one, it starts with this stunning first paragraph, and the paragraph uh, establishes two things in about 20 lines. Then go over to the next page. Uh, he says, everything... Every I'll name the the, the, the verbs. Uh, every action, choice, inquiry, and art aims for some good, and therefore it has been beautifully said that the good is that for which all things aim. That's very powerful, right? And then the rest of the paragraph uh, establishes that the goods are arranged in a hierarchy. Some of them are higher, and some of them are lower. Some of them are for the sake of something else, and some of them are for their own sake. And so, in the first paragraph, he teaches you that it's a vertical, not a horizontal universe, and that, and that the good is the, the, the complete good would be at the top of it. And, and then he has to qualify. So, many, I think there are 13 chapters in book one, and several of them in a row start with, to return to our point. <laughs> right, so he he has to stop and tell you something else to to uh, understand what what you're about to meet. And one of the things he says is, this is not really for young people. Uh, they don't have enough experience, and and uh, uh. 
this, this kind of study is for mature people. Now, of course, I'm teaching it to college students. Yes. And uh, How do and, they react to that? Well, I point out to them, he doesn't say anything about age. He says something about maturity. So you're here in the course. If you're not ready, you better get yourself ready by the next class. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, and, they, and, you know, another thing is, this is a book that's, you know, you know, there are some books like this, and this is not the only one. It's my favorite. They're worth reading and knowing for a long time. And, you know, they, and, you know, anything, you learn this about your dissertation and stuff like that. If you, you know, go to graduate school and study for years and years, you find out that it, 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 uh, if, you, if you pick well and you've got a good one, it will place the war, world in order for you and give you things to think about in every situation. You know, Doctor, on that point, I, I keep one book at my bedside, which is Montaigne's essays, because I spend a lot of time as a young man reading those. And I have around me for pleasure all of Joseph Epstein's essay collections. <laughs> it's a lot easier to read Joseph Epstein than it is to read Montaigne. But they do different things. Uh, and Aristotle has just proven too difficult for me. Over the, I don't keep it on. I don't do what you do, which is read it every. I mean, my gosh. How did the students do in this thing when they came to friendship? Did you ever get there? Because I, I know you've said, Harry Jaffa said, what a book. This is quite a book. And he never, ever got close to finishing it. Well, we didn't get out of book one. <laughs> and we skipped the part about Plato because it was too complicated for us. <laughs> and yet we read, read the whole thing. Now, Hillsdale's different. And uh, they, they want to finish, right? So yep. there's a particular year that uh, stands out. I've taught it six or eight times, I guess, here in 23 years. And uh, one year, I couldn't get them to go on. Questions, everything had to be hashed out ten times over, right? And I kept saying, you're going to be upset toward the end because we're not going to finish. We're not going to finish. Well, no. we had, in the last six days of the term, including on Saturday and Sunday afternoon, we had 32 hours of class. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we were all exhausted, and you know, because we had to finish, see. And, uh, you know, they just, we just had to have more meetings. And, uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's, that was, you know, that was really great. That's uh, kind of unprecedented in my experience. I, I had Edward Banfield as a tutor, along with a good friend Regina Pisa, and we would sit, and it was brilliant, but it was exhausting. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it because he was so brilliant. It was, yeah. you know. His dry sense of humor was epic. Oh, did you know him? Yeah, I did. Oh, he was a great, great teacher. Oh, he yeah. was a great teacher. Because he never told us anything. He just asked us questions. And the three of us sat around. Very Okay, we're going to come back. and We're, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. And I'm actually going to lay out for you what we will talk about more next week, which is the third. Dr. Arn's going to tell you what that third form of friendship is. We've been teasing you for seven segments and we're going to come back to that as the hilltale dialogue for this week concludes stand by i'll be right back welcome back america you're here with dr larry Arn. week two of our conversations about friendship the third category of friendship, Doctor. We got to pay the payoff, right? We got to tell people what it is. Well, that's uh, so. The highest thing is 
when you get your soul in order and you possess all the virtues and you can think, because that's, you know, a different requirement, there are different capacities in people for different virtues. Everybody has some capacity for each of the virtues. But, you know, like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, they were pretty smart. And so not everybody's like that. And uh, But if you have that capacity and you organize your whole life around that, uh, uh, friendship, by the way, comes up first uh, in a kind of disparagement. Because in book one, he says that... Uh, we disagree with Plato about the forms. He doesn't, you find out in other books eventually, but for this, the purpose of this book, he does. And we have to prefer truth to our friends. You see, that's the first mention of friendship in the ethics. And then by the end of the ethics, what you find out is the real friendships are founded, the highest friendships are founded among people who pursue truth and beauty above all else. And, and, and only such people can be of assistance to one another. That, that means that uh, Socrates, you know, if he cared, uh, he needed Plato for two reasons. Uh, he needed him to talk to. Huh. Plato was a very brilliant man. Plato, by the way, also does not, he does not appear in the dialogues, and Socrates doesn't write any of them. Uh, but... He needed him. He needed him not just to record, to participate. And, and he, you know, he was in he was in Socrates' company for years, and then he started his own academy. And Aristotle was in that, and then Aristotle started his own. And they had these discussions, and they figured things out together, right? And that is the highest thing. That is, uh, you know, that that's why I say war friendships are very high. Take, take that trajectory, time. though, Doctor. It ends up with Alexander the Great conquering the world. And it, it, so you've gone from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle. Aristotle teaches Alexander, and Alexander rampages through the world. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, he certainly, we know that Aristotle was certainly affiliated with Alexander's family. And Alexander had respect for some record of, for Aristotle. Uh, I don't think that what Aristotle was teaching Alexander was world conquest. It was not moderation, though. There's certainly not a lot of moderation in Alexander. But to go back to, I'm thinking of Neller and Spies, and we may return to this again and again. When, when, how do people know that they've got this, this level of friendship with somebody? Uh, well, there's certain signals, right? Uh, uh, it would be necessary to delight in their company. It would necessary, be necessary to always do that. It would be necessary for the company to be improving of one another all the time. And that does, does not mean lecturing one another at all. It means giving each other examples. Uh, uh, Aristotle t talks about quandaries that arise in high friendships. Uh, here's a classic one, maybe the most vivid one. Uh, Mel Spies and Brett Neller are on a battlefield. And there's an opportunity to do some beautiful thing that will probably lead to death. Uh, they would be in a quandary whether to let their friend do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Because there's, uh, there is know, perfection so. and glory in that, and but there's perfection and glory in denying yourself the perfection and glory. That's it. That's it. And that's, 
you see, because, and that helps to radicalize. Uh, uh, Aristotle is a very careful man, and he does not make absolute statements lightly. And that's his, one of his ways of emphasizing that in the end, the love of beauty and truth and goodness must govern your life on all occasions. And uh, that, that's how to be a man for all seasons, to quote that play about Thomas More. Uh, and we all want to be that, by the way. Uh, we're not, uh, we, we, we don't all become that for a lot of reasons. One of them is not clear-headed about it. Uh, uh, why, you know, and another is don't meet the right people to help us. Although, you know, the very yeah. greatest people might not need yeah. that. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, what I'm looking for, we talked about admissions at the beginning. What I want to know when I talk to them is why. Why do you want to do this? Tell me. Right? Because they will, you know, when, when you hire somebody, by the way, I, you know, I do that a lot. And I always try to find out one thing. What do they love? Because uh, if you can find that out, you can predict their behavior. And wow. Also, in- they'll likely be good at whatever it is they love. We will be back on this for many weeks. By the way, America, you have a chance now to go to hillsdale.edu and take that course before we come back next week. We're part of it. Because now that I know that there's an organization out there somewhere, I may model my next 100 weeks on that course. Hillsdale.edu, the ethics. Go find it. Go enjoy it. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.